1951, Life magazine broke the, remote, the remarkable story of Pastor Henry Gorecki. Gorecki was an American Lutheran minister who had served in the American army overseas in Germany during World War II. As an army chaplain, he had been to the concentration camps, he had ministered to the wounded and to the dying. His boys were also in the army. His oldest son had been severely wounded in the fighting. His younger son had suffered in the Battle of the Bulge. But the pastor wasn't profiled for any of these experiences. He actually became famous because he had been tapped to become the chaplain for the Nuremberg Trials. His task was to provide Christian comfort and counsel to the Nazi defendants. Now, these men and their names have become synonymous with evil. Albert Speer, who designed the German war machine. Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering, one of Germany's most powerful men. Field Marshal Keitel, Hitler's favorite general. Von Ribbentrop, the foreign minister, more than 20 defendants housed in a prison complex. The youngest of them was the leader of the Hitler Youth. For months, Gorecki led these men in worship and Bible study. He used a converted jail cell. An SS officer was his organist. He urged repentance on them. He prepared them to receive communion. He accompanied them to their sentencing. He stood with each of them as they received their judgment, and he walked with each of them to the gallows where they hung. Before they died, one said, I thank God for you and for those who sent you. Another said, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. Another turned to the pastor as the noose was placed on his neck and said, I will see you again. Asked if he believed their professions of faith, Pastor Gorecki said this, most of them repented. They asked God for forgiveness of their sins against Him and humanity. They did so in a spirit that convinced me their repentance was true. I have had many years of experience as a prison chaplain and do not believe I am easily deluded by phony reformations at the 11th hour. Can God's grace even reach Nazi war criminals? Will we be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb alongside men who are responsible for murdering six million Jews in Europe? Surely that's a waste, a waste of God's grace. Whatever you're feeling right now, maybe some discomfort, uh, the incredulity at the wideness of God's mercy. 
want you to hold on to that as we talk about Levi. Levi, the tax collector. Levi, who is also called Matthew in the Gospels, had to have been one of the most hated men in Israel. The zealots of Jesus' day, and remember that a zealot eventually becomes part of Jesus' band of disciples alongside Levi, but the zealots of Jesus' day believed that submission to the Roman occupation was an act of treason against God. And Levi was the face of that treason, sitting right there in his booth collecting taxes, verse 14 tells us. I don't think of Levi as an IRS agent or someone sitting in an office calculating income tax. Instead, he sat in a booth so that as people brought their goods from one part of the Roman Empire into another, he could levy a sort of toll tax or an excise tax on their goods. The Roman Empire had set up a fairly elaborate system of taxation. And Levi had a job almost like a franchisee would have here in the United States. He purchased an area where he could collect taxes for the Roman Empire. And whatever money he earned above and beyond what he owed to the empire, he could keep for himself. Around this same time, Philo, a Jewish philosopher, complained about a tax collector he knew. Philo says, he's amassed much wealth by defrauding and embezzling. Later, after this time period, in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, which are collections essentially of rabbinic teachings, Tax collectors were lumped in with thieves and murderers. They couldn't serve as witnesses in a court of law. They were expelled from their local synagogues. They were considered a disgrace to their families. But as Martin Luther once said, God does not find that which is pleasing to him. He creates it. And the call of Jesus created a beautiful thing in Levi. Calling Levi from darkness into light. Levi doesn't clean himself up and make amends before Jesus calls him. Jesus calls him in the midst of his treason. And Levi left everything. The parallel passage in Luke says that Levi left it all behind and followed Jesus. In verse 15, we see that Jesus is reclining at Levi's house with tax collectors and sinners. Again, that parallel passage in Luke chapter 5 says it was a great feast, a great banquet. Some commentators reflect on the fact that this is not Jesus stopping in and gracing someone with his presence, but He has settled in for the feast. He is reclining at the table. I've been to some amazing restaurants in my life. I have 
enjoyed memorable evenings with family and friends. Uh, the food and the wine just never seemed to stop coming, right? That's what we need to think of when we think of this great banquet, this great feast. And I wonder if it's this party that Jesus is remembering in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) You can almost imagine Jesus winking at Levi as he says this. Do you remember that night? That was an awesome party. But every party has a pooper, and here here they show up in verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees. This is the first time that we've mentioned the Pharisees in the Gospel of Mark, so I want to just give you a couple of minutes here on what the Pharisees are. You know, as Christians, if you are a regular reader of the Bible, the Pharisees are the bad guys. They're the ones who wear the black hats in our imaginations. And yet the Pharisees were actually a very important and very well-respected group during Jesus' day. They date back about 200 years before Jesus to the time of the Maccabean Revolt. And the thing that was really important for the Pharisees was to keep the world from influencing the faith. To keep the outside world, particularly Greek philosophy and religion, from having an undue influence on Israel and on the Jewish faith. Now, surely that's a good thing. We would want that even for ourselves. We don't want the outside world to shape our faith, to shape our teaching, to shape our worship. The Pharisees believed that God's law could be applied to every situation of life. Many of us believe that God's law can be applied to every situation of life. They went so far as to identify every single law they could find in the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, 248 positive commandments and 365 negative commandments. So things that you must do and things that you must not do. And again, through all of this, most of us are probably shifting a little bit uncomfortably now. Like, well, maybe they weren't so bad after all. What was Jesus' beef with them? Well, in addition to believing that God's law was applicable to every situation of life, they had also constructed an entire second kind of law. A secondary set of rules and regulations, commandments, that they believed would help protect God's people. So if you wanted to obey this law about fasting, for instance, they would give you some secondary laws of of things that you must do in order to make sure that you fast in the way that God is commanding you. And eventually, it's that structure that begins to define them. And it's their adherence to that structure, sometimes even at the expense of God's law, that separates them. Now, ironically, of all the major groups in Israel at this time, Jesus probably had the most in common with the Pharisees. 
because of their love for God's law. And yet, Jesus and the Pharisees are like oil and water, constantly at odds with one another. The scribes of the Pharisees, or the scribes and the Pharisees, as some of your Bible versions might put it, come to his disciples and they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, it's bad enough that you've added a tax collector to your merry band of disciples. But why would you eat with them? I think for us, we don't really get the sense of of what importance eating was in that culture. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. This isn't an invitation to an evangelistic encounter. He's asking the church to come and open the door so he can come and what? To dine with you. It's a sign of intimacy. In the early church, uh, in the, 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 some of the early church documents after the New Testament was written, Christians are defined as those who share their beds with none and their tables with all. It's bad enough that you've brought this guy into your group, but now you're compounding the problem with this intimacy with sinners. You're drawing close to sinners. Well, you think, well, I'm a sinner. I I want Jesus to eat with me. What's the big deal here? Well, these aren't just people that sin. When this word is used here in verse 15 about tax collectors and sinners, these are people whose identity is bound up in their sinful lifestyle. In fact, the same Greek word here is used in the Psalms for those who are at odds with the law of God. Sinners here are the wicked in the Psalms. Jesus has sat down, not just with treasonous tax collectors, he's also sat down with the wicked, with those who hate God's law. How can your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 17, Jesus replies with a parable of sorts, a kind of proverbial statement. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And on the face of it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Well, of course, Jesus doesn't come for people who don't need him. If you think everything is a-okay with you and the man upstairs, then what possible need do you have for a savior? If you trust in yourself, why would you trust in Jesus? Jesus says, I come for the sick. I come for the unrighteous. I come for sinners. He comes for those who are willing to tell the hard truth about themselves. And Jesus comes for people as they are. He doesn't come for the repentant tax collectors, for the sinners who have amended their ways. He comes and dines with them as they are. If they repent, 
They don't do it to gain Jesus' favor because Jesus here is already demonstrating his love for them. We don't know how many of these tax collectors and sinners at Levi's party ever repented and followed Jesus on their own, but that doesn't seem to be a calculus that concerns Jesus. He isn't weighing out his grace, ensuring that it's spent in the best possible use for the best possible people. He wastes his grace. He sows it widely like the sower in Mark chapter 4 who threw seed even into unpromising spaces. Now, maybe if Jesus had a plan for discipleship, Maybe if Jesus had a program for repentance, maybe if Jesus had a process to rehabilitate sinners, the Pharisees could have gotten on board. They could have said, "Ah, I can see what you're doing here. I can see how you're helping these folks toward moral reformation. But here in Mark chapter 2, he just seems content to dine with them. His presence, his fellowship come before there is any demand for change. I wonder if that's the secret of Jesus' ministry. Is this why he says, just days before he will die, in Matthew chapter 21, that tax collectors and prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before the religious leaders. This is a simple story of a man who was in need of saving and forgiveness. A man who has been brought into relationship with Jesus, a new follower of Christ. But I think that this simple story has for us a message of danger. It has for us a challenge. And it has for us a comfort. A danger, a challenge, and a comfort, and this is what we'll end with. The danger is that every last one of us this morning in this room is a Levi. But the danger is that we tend to become Pharisees over time. As we grow in our understanding of God's word, as we mature, Maybe as we leave behind some of our notorious sins or we figure out how to hide them. We excuse our remaining sin and we end up standing in judgment over those who aren't as decent, who aren't as moral, who aren't as upstanding as we are. But friends, when we take that position we have stopped following Jesus. In fact, we've said that Jesus' mission doesn't belong to us. Folks, I think that as we have to fight this tendency, we as a congregation also have to fight the tendency to welcome people in that look like us. Oh, they belong here. They're moral. They're upstanding. Everything's going great in their life. And then to look at other people and think, oh God, please don't let them join the church. 
Please don't bring them into our space. Do you look out over the city of Austin and see folks that you know belong here and people that you know don't belong here? Do you worry when you see someone coming up the steps and wonder what kind of baggage they're bringing into the congregation? That's a danger. A challenge is this. Who's eating at your table? Or actually a better question is this. To whose table have you been invited? How many of us have become so busy in our lives or we have chosen to wall off the world from our existence to the point that very few people in our lives, maybe our hairdresser, maybe somebody that we see at a restaurant that we frequent often, but very few people in our lives are actually from the world. Almost everyone that we engage with believes as we do, acts as we do. Is it simply because we're too busy? Is it simply because we have made these choices to wall people off? Or are people avoiding us because we smell like Pharisees? And because people in the world can see that. And they know, probably better than we know. I will admit that I don't think I lead well here. It is easy for me to fill my time with other people who look like me, who act like me, who think like me, who believe like me. And so this week, I have committed this as a matter of prayer before God. And I want you to join with me in that. Pray that God would move us, maybe even physically move us, to engage with men and women and children around us who haven't yet responded to Jesus' call of discipleship, that we would use our homes, that we would use our time, that we would use our food and our drink, not just to show love to those we already like, but to show love the way that Jesus showed love to the friends of Levi. A danger, a challenge, but also a comfort. The comfort is this. Never forget that the church is a company of saved sinners. The church is a company of saved sinners. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In our tendency toward Phariseeism, I think many of us stop right there. Peer over our glasses and wag our finger at the world. You see? You see, this is what's keeping you from the kingdom of God. Don't you forget this. <laughs> but you got to keep reading. Paul goes on in verse 11. And such were some of you. 
you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The church is a company of saved sinners. Are you regularly moved to worship and gratitude by the enormity of God's grace towards you? Not just saving you from your past sins, but rescuing you from the guilt and shame of your present sin and holding on to you even through your future sin. Jesus came for sinners. He came for the sick. That's the only thing that qualifies you for the kingdom of God. That's what makes us recipients of his great mercy and love. Let's pray. Father, this simple story includes so much truth that it's probably hard for us to comprehend it all. And so I pray that we would be brought back to it again and again over this next week to reflect on Jesus, a friend of sinners, who isn't content to leave them where they are, but also doesn't stop being their savior as they mature. Father, may we all repent of our pride, look up from our guilt and shame, and see Jesus the one who is our Savior yesterday, today, and forever, the one on whom we must rely and trust every day of our lives. And Father, may we look around and find others to point them to his same love. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.